morning, and welcome back to another episode of A Tiny Revolution. I'm Kevin, and I'm so glad you are tuning in today. I'm coming to you right now from Seattle. I am at a co-working space with my dog, and probably sounds a little funny because I'm recording into my phone because I left my mic at home, but who cares? This is what you do when you got life on the road. You improvise. Um, if you're listening to this when the day comes out, um, uh, Seattle, I'm coming to see you this Friday. I'm actually already in the city. So please, um, go get your tickets at thekevingarcia.com slash tour. Um, Matthias Roberts is going to be there. Mace and Scott from No Small Thing, as well as the incredible Gabe's Torres. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this show. Again, it's thekevingarcia.com slash tour. Get your tickets now. It's going to be baller. Um, I also think it's funny that the place that's hosting us used to be Mark Driscoll's church way back in the fucking day. So I just think it's very funny that me, a um, uh, a non-binary, uh, gender transgressing human, is leading a woo-woo VBS event in that building. I just think the poetics are delicious. Um, so yeah, we'll see you on Friday. And then next Friday, we're going to see you in Minneapolis with my friends Micah J. Murray, Jonah Venegas. Oh, also, if you've never met Jonah, what a treat, what a dream. I can't wait for you to meet him. Um, my friend Emmy Kegler and Rachel Kurtz is going to be opening up the show with some incredible music. So I can't wait for all of us to be there together. Um, but let's get into today's show. We are talking to, honestly, someone who I think I'd call, like, one of my friends now. Um, just because we've been floating around the internet and then we get to talk and it's just, it's so good. Today I'm talking to Diana Butler Bass. Um, Diana Butler Bass, PhD, don't forget, is an award-winning author, a popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted commentators on religion and contemporary spirituality. And you know what? I would second that emotion. Diana's passion is sharing great ideas that change lives and the world, a passion that ranges from informing the public about spiritual trends, challenging conventional narratives about religious practice, entering the fray of social media with spiritual wisdom and smart theology, and writing books to help readers see themselves, their place in history, and how to see God differently. Um, Her credentials, you want to get into it, Doctorate of Religious Studies from Duke, um, author of 11 books, bylines in the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN.com, Atlantic.com, USA Today, Huffington Post, Spirituality and Health, Reader's Digest, Christian Century, and Sojourners. She has been a commentator uh, of politics, religion, and culture, um, including on CBS, CNN, PBS, NPR, CBC, Fox, Sirius, XM, Time, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, and multiple global news outlets. In the 1990s, she wrote a weekly column on religion and culture for the Santa Barbara News Press, which was distributed nationally by the New York Times Syndicate. Come through. Um, currently living in Alexandria with her dog and their sometimes successful backyard garden. Um, her and her husband are just like living the dream. And she's such a cool person. Um, so I can't wait for you to, to, to listen in. Um, let me know online what you thought about this. Um, I would love for you during, as you're listening to this conversation, tweet quotes that are interesting to you, tag the show, tag me, tag Diana, and let's get a conversation going about this because I found this to be an incredible conversation. We were focusing on her new book that came out recently. Um, and there was a, someone outside. Oh, shoot. 
people, wow. Uh, we, today we talk about, um, in her newest book, Freeing Jesus, subtitle, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Um, and it was kind of like, we talked about, like, you know, why this book? And she said, you know, like, a lot of my friends asked how could I could still be Christians. And in this book, she explains her experience of Jesus. And kind of she's kind of like me, where it's like, you know, the church is going to come and go, but, like, Jesus is the thing that I like the most and I have no other way to explain it beyond that um, but we're gonna get into it um, I hope you really really enjoy this conversation with my new my new internet Judy and good friend Diana Butler Bass to I think we've like met in passing sometimes like probably around like wild goose if you've ever been out in that direction yes um, but uh, it's a pleasure to real to get to sit down with you oh my gosh i'm gonna take two seconds to freak out and say holy shit i love your work it's okay. really you're like really good at at writing about god and stuff so like way to go well thank you i have had a little practice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh first off how are you how are you feeling right now how's life oh also where are you in the world well, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, so okay. right right across the river from the the, the big conflicted city. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I'm kind of the way that a lot of people are right now. I'm double vaccinated, so I'm ready to go, mm-hmm. but the whole world is closed, you know, and yeah. so there's like nothing to do. And, um, I, you know, it's been so hard. Yeah, but- same. Um, I'm originally from Williamsburg, Virginia. I grew up in the 757 and I went to school, uh, to Christopher Newport University. So. All um, places I know. I know. Nobody actually, because like I never meet anyone who still lives in Virginia because I can't, I have not met anybody who's like, I I can't stay here. And so at least that was my experience during college. It's like we had a a nice mass exodus after we all graduated. Oh, you know, that's so funny because. Uh, Virginia has changed so much since I've lived here. We, mm-hmm. my husband grew up in Vienna, um, but and, and we came back here in 2000. And when we first moved to our particular neighborhood, it was a neighborhood that was still, you know, sort of relatively conservative, sort of well, very middle of the road, very kind of remnants of the 1970s, and. Um, it's it's just like not that way now Mm. i mean this is an incredibly dynamic very open very liberal place now and my my uh voting precinct for example the first year we moved here it kept it kept splitting 50 50 50 50 50 50 50 for democrats and republicans and then the last election it was 75 percent democrats that is a shift yeah and so so it's been interesting to be around here and see that happen and and how people are mm-hmm. coping and like a house across the street from us that just sold as soon as the people moved in they hung out a rainbow flag that's <laughs> nice that's really you know, cool it's just like the little old virginia suburbs and there's the rainbow flag and the black Lives matter signs down the street and there we go okay, biracial you know couples and Listen, maybe maybe I I have uh, sold it short. Maybe I'm still just remembering <laughs> the trauma of my childhood. I'm ready to give it a second chance. <laughs> no, you you stay where God has put you. Uh, <laughs> listen, I love Atlanta. I love living here. I mean, like, 
especially like uh, over the last, like over the course of the last election, getting to work with Fair Fight and do a lot of organizing down here. Fantastic. God, it was so, it was the most gratifying thing when Georgia turned blue. I was like, yeah. wow. I was like, it was one of the few, like it's one of those few times in your life where you can see what you did. And it's like, I was like, I called people, I texted people and apparently it worked. Yeah. So I was really proud of us. Really proud of the crew. And now um, keep it blue. Come on. We are ready. Keep it like blue. I mean the only problem with Atlanta is it's surrounded by Georgia. So like right. you know. Um, right. But we're working on it. Anyways, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this, this book. Great. Um I got it a couple days ago and I've been like voraciously reading as fast as my ADD brain can go. <laughs> and what I've always really enjoyed about your work is you you write like you talk, first of all, which I enjoy, which is like, you talk like, I, I feel like I can send this book to my mom, and I think I will, because mm. it's accessible in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, it's almost just like, you point out some of the most obvious things that are just, if you grew up evangelical, or like in a place where like, there's little to no biblical education, <laughs> like, uh, these things are mind-blowing and super liberative. So... Now that I'm done gushing over you, why don't would you introduce, like, what is Freeing Jesus? What is it? Why'd you write it? Well, it, it, it's funny because almost all my other books have just sort of very purposeful stories behind them. I, I saw a question or a problem and I wanted to pursue it. But this one came as an accident. Um mm. What I was planning on writing in the summer of 2019 was sort of like a handbook of theology for people who had left church behind. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, you know, theology, I think the stories of the Bible, I think the wisdom that the tradition, Christian tradition holds is really important. And I understand why people are leaving church, but I thought, okay, let's, how would you take theology out into the world. Mm -hmm. So the first book, the subtitle of it was um, an unsystematic theology. Ooh, now I would have read that too. Yeah, it's a great title. And, and I thought about, you know, I was going to address the, all these different areas of theology, creation, uh, the nature of humankind, uh, the Bible itself. You know, just very light questions. Yeah. And I was, but I was good. Yeah. Light questions. <laughs> and I was good doing these, you know, sort of the ways that I do it, you know, sort of turning the question around and helping people see things a little differently. So it was going to have eight chapters with these big, big headings. And I, when I started the book, I thought, oh, you know, where to begin? Mm. And I, I looked at the list and I thought, I'm going to start with Jesus because that'll be the easiest thing to write about. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I'm going to write about these really, you know, casual ideas. And then I'm going to start with a real casual figure. Yeah. Just, just, Hey, I'm going to write about Jesus. Yeah. And, and so I sat down and I started writing and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And it wound up that first draft of this supposed Jesus chapter was about 70 or 80 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a great, a great sample chapter for, uh, for somebody, for sure. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is not a book about everything in theology. What, what was I thinking? This is a book about Jesus. So I called my publisher and I said, I think that I've got a different book on my hands. And that's how this one was born. So mm. it's, it's funny. It's the only book I've ever written that was a complete accident. 
That's the best. And that's also like, I also think that's how you know, like you're in line with like whatever spirit's doing when it's just like, there's something here. And if you have eyes to see it and just recognize the gift that comes to you, you really start flowing with it. Yeah. I I think that that was what was happening, you know, just when I was writing that first first part of it. And some of those 70 or 80 pages wound up in this copy, but mm. some of them were also things that I think I just needed to get off my chest while I was writing. Mm. And um, so, so after we figured out this was the book, then I became a lot more intentional about it. Mm. You know, how should I, how should I frame this? And why is this book the one that's coming out of my heart? Mm -hmm. And, and what does this book speak to in the culture? So at that point, you know, I got more focused and thought, uh, you know, what are the animated questions? And I realized that Mm -hmm. I had questions. And I also realized that I think that the kind of cultural mix we're in right now is, is swirling with questions, not about Christianity in general, but questions about Jesus in particular. Yes. So I was really willing to sit with those questions and try to point potential life-giving directions um, Mm -hmm. towards people finding new answers for their questions about Jesus. That, I mean, so far so good. Like that's what I'm, I'm getting out of this book too. So way to go. I think it's wonderful and interesting. And I also think it's true that what you said right now, we're having a cultural mix of, uh, like you, like as you said, you, I originally started this book as some as a project for folks who have left church buildings and Christ, like you know, um, Christian spaces. Um, like, can I ask, like, you know, where, what about you right now? Where, like, do you participate in like any sort of Christian community, either digitally or in person, or is that, or do you feel like you're just out here in the wild? <laughs> the idea of Diana out in the wild that amuses me. <laughs> That's your next um, book, Diana in the Wild. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I still do go to to church. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little teeny, very quirky um, Episcopal church in my neighborhood. And when I, you know, this is sort of pre-pandemic language. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> uh, but um, when I was traveling almost every weekend, you know, I was yeah. always in church, but I was never in a church that was like my church. Mm-hmm. So I would be, you know, 30 weekends a year, I'd be in someone else's church preaching mm-hmm. or teaching or what have you. Mm-hmm. But then when I come home, this little quirky Episcopal church uh, has an evening service that's a very soft, um, contemplative, renewing space. Mm-hmm. And I need that and so that's how I attend church in my own neighborhood. And plus, I know the people there because I mm-hmm. live next door to them. It really is a neighborhood church. That's dope. Yeah. And and so that's where I go. Um, and occasionally I go to a silent Quaker meeting because and that's also in my neighborhood. And I find that renewing, too. But um, in terms of, you know, going to church every week, the same place or, you know, even every other week or once mm-hmm. a month. Um, It's hard for me to do that just by the nature of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And I have questions too, you know, to be perfectly honest. Um, You know, some of the things that happen in church um, strike me the wrong way. And I, Mm. I, you know, especially since I write about this stuff and I I stop and once in a while I think, well, you know, damn, that's why people are leaving places like this. You know, I wish, I wish these nice folks realized that. Mm -hmm. 
And Did, you know. is that something that you're realizing as like you're traveling to these places and speaking in various churches that like, okay, I'm here. I know that like what I'm trying to give is a welcoming, like a call, a call to like bring people in. And yet I see these practices right in front of me that are clearly less than welcoming. You know, the funniest thing, Kevin, I just think I have the luckiest life in the world in some ways mm. when it comes to church, because most of the people who invite me, I mean, they know who I am mm -hmm. through my work, through social media, all those things. And so I don't get invited into a whole Oof. lot of places that are really horrible. Well, that's, you know? that's good to know. <laughs> invited to places that are generally very welcoming places that would you know never think in a million years of of excluding purposefully mm -hmm. excluding people mm -hmm. um and that of course goes and begs the question you know because there's always the non-purposeful mm -hmm. exclusion and not being able to recognize you know how all of us have closed some doors mm -hmm. of our hearts and our lives and communities. Um, but, you know, I walk up to a church and you're going to, you're going to see yourself a pride flag and you're going to see a black lives <laughs> matter sign outside of those churches where I speak. Well, hell yeah. It's okay. I'll come, I'll come to your next thing. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to beg me, please. Um, there was a couple of things. I'm, I'm the kind of girl who highlights my books as I'm going. So I've got things I wanted to start it with. Um, this thing, if this is from your introduction, um, page XXVI, um, sometimes Christians interpret, uh, says a verse in the New Testament says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And sometimes Christians interpret that to mean Jesus is static, almost like a pillar of stone, ever reliable, never changing. But we, of course, do change. And because of that, Jesus goes with us in and through change, growing with us as we grow, a surprising companion who never ceases to be who we need at any given time, showing up, recognized, but ever new. Come on, process theology goddess. <laughs> I, I loved that text uh, as I was reading it because it was really, that's what I grew up with, is Jesus doesn't change. The word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I, I make that voice because that's how my family talks. Um, but that the, the idea that Jesus is here with us as we're changing and that we don't have to fit into like, like you talked about it, the flannel board Jesus that was presented to us. Yeah, I, I, I can't even, I, I mean, you got it. You know, what can you say is that that verse has been used as a clobber verse mm -hmm. against people who have, I think, exploring natures, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And and wh what do you know about that? You know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, literally, how do you ever really know that? I mm -hmm. mean, it's certainly it says that, and and yet, at the same time, as I write, all these Jesuses I've known through my own life, that they, they've been different Jesuses, mm -hmm. and um, I think that people use a verse like that as mm -hmm. a way of stopping people from having questions mm -hmm. and so when people have often directed against me i i say things like is that an excuse <laughs> <laughs> i'm about to use that and what is that an excuse for why you're horrible and being mean 
Right. Or why you won't engage in change or why you can't accept people who are different from you. Is that, is that an excuse? And so. Because Jesus. Ooh, I'm about to use that. You think that Jesus is your excuse for discriminating against people? Yeah. Or for acting like it's the 1950s. Hello. You know, and so, so I just kind of go, the, the way that that verse is used makes no sense. And the other piece of it is, Oh, mm. and yeah, you recognize the process theology sort of <laughs> place. I got I got my degree in practical theology. So as soon as we got to that in theology, in like my history of, I call it the history of theologies class, not because just theology one and two. I didn't like that name. <laughs> um, but process theology got me real in my bones because it also, small tangent, really intersects with a lot of like how different indigenous and magical or uh, pagan worldviews see how God interacts and moves in the world. And so as I discovered that, I was like, oh, you mean I can still hold on to this while I am still moving into this too? So cool to see. Well, I have had a personal project going when this is the first time I've said this. So congratulations (laughs) for getting this on your podcast. An exclusive. I've had a real personal project going um, since the publication of Christianity After Religion, which Mm -hmm. is a book that I wrote in 2000, it released in 2012. And that book was about trends, you know, how religion Mm -hmm. was changing. And I remember after that book came out, a lot of people asked me questions saying, well, you know, how do you think your own spiritual life sort of moves in such a way that it's it's um, responsive to or mm. answers these kinds of trends. And I said, well, you know, I was mostly concerned about writing trends and it's not about me. And then I went, hey, it can be about it can be about me. <laughs> and so I thought that it was really important for me to begin putting my own voice, mm. a theological voice more into yeah. my books. And to begin to unfurl um, what I think is been the most life-giving path for me mm-hmm. theologically. And that's been around panentheism, the mm-hmm. idea that God is, you know, with us and in and through all things. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, process thought, the idea that the universe is an, is an unfolding act of, of creation mm-hmm. that, that's you know, we participate in. And so to take that verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you are a an unreconstructed Calvinist, that means X, Y, Z, you know, that mm-hmm. there is a sort of unchangeable, true doctrine, and you can never deviate from that. Yeah. Tulip, baby. Tulip. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever you are, and you think yours is the single static truth that is the same since before the foundation of time until the universe completely ends Um, or this idea of process which does retain the sense of Jesus eternity because Mm -hmm. when I look at that verse Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever what I think is Jesus is embodied love Mm -hmm. jesus is all compassion 
Jesus is a physical incarnation of the creative God coming toward us. Mm-hmm. You know, and that those things don't change. Right. Those are the mm-hmm. same. Always. Mm-hmm. Always. But we experience that in companionship with with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in that companionship, we participate, we become mm-hmm. part of the unfolding act mm-hmm. of that love and justice through the cosmos. And so, yeah, process theology. If, and it's easy. Uh, some people think process theology, oh, that's so hard. That's for, that's for Phil Clayton who is actually mm. a friend of mine. We went to college together. Nice. <laughs> he, he, he's probably one of the leading process theologians in the world right now. And um, the truth of it is, is yes, it, it is for high level philosophy, but it's also for me. It's mm-hmm. also a daily lived reality of my mm-hmm. life. And that's what I'm trying to teach people, that these kinds of theological ideas are accessible and beautiful and practical, mm-hmm. and they are truthful in that we live them. Yes. They're not just words on a page. Mm-hmm. There, um, you, two things I want to go after. First thing, you talk about in the introduction to your book about, you know, hearing the voice of God, both like in a you know, an intuitive sense, like in like in my person, I just felt like I was supposed to do X, Y, Z, which I would say is real. And then you also say, I know that I feel a little crazy saying this, but excuse me, I feel a little delusional saying this. Um, uh, but I hear, I heard a voice and I thought, I'm pretty sure it was Jesus saying, get me out of here, meaning the church. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those like mystic woo-woo girls who's just like, makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> So like, has that always, that kind of relationship or the way you relate to the person of Jesus or the spirit of the Christ, has it always kind of been that very familiar feeling? Um, first, I have to tell you that all of my mystic woo-woo girlfriends are among my very favorites. Hey, I'll be your mystic woo-woo girlfriend. Mm. <laughs> there you go. So I have like a whole group of them and I really love them. <laughs> and um well, yes, I've always been, uh, and my my very best friend, interestingly enough, is not that. She's actually mm-hmm. a, a, an ex-Calvinist, now ex-Christian atheist, PhD in religious studies. And Sweet. yeah, she's she's amazing, and I love her so much. And and so she's she's not my mystical friend. But one time, about thirty years ago, we were actually talking about these things and she said i just don't know how you do it diana and uh, how you still believe in god and 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 how you call yourself a christian Mm. and and i kind of stumble around sometimes when i'm talking with her to try to explain it but i said well you know i love jesus that was always my first answer to her Mm. and still mine yeah oh it's a great answer really and she looked at me and she goes oh you've always been a bit of a mystic anyway so so there's something there that my friends recognize and and that i i have treasured in myself Mm -hmm. real highly intuitive connection Mm -hmm. with sometimes those things which are just beyond the horizon that other people can see so that's Mm -hmm. i think that's what mysticism is (sighs) seeing it i also i've heard it said like the mystic sees God as just that which is just beyond their periphery. 
Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, that's that's a perfect description. That's what I was trying to go for, just to, just beyond the horizon. Yeah. Um, I I sometimes think of, of God also as the word that resides after the last word in a sentence. Hello. Dang. And I think what is lovely about you talking about your experiences in this way, because I talk about my experiences of Jesus in a very similar way. The way you talk about it is like, he walks with me, talks with me, tells me I'm his own. It's my mama's favorite hymn. It's um, lovely. Uh, the, the thing you get into in chapter two, talking about Jesus's teacher, is you pull on this thread of where Jesus is coming and speaking on matters of law and, and ethics and good living on his own authority. And so I wonder if you could like talk about how that parallels, I feel like what a lot of, you know, people who are either still Christians or progressive Christians deconstructing, we're all kind of learning what it is to uh, speak on our own authority, if you will. Right. Yeah, um, please excuse if you hear any noise in the background. My okay. office is in the middle of my backyard and my neighbors just turned on their Listen, leaf blowers. Listen, it always <laughs> happens right when you're trying to record. It's like my neighbor next door. That's why I tried to record in the afternoon because when I went, I was like, I'll wake up 9 a.m. I'm like, I'm ready to go. And then. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, I, I, nobody told me that in a pandemic, it would help to have a soundproof office. <laughs> Listen, oh, uh, word to the wise. They now have soundproofing curtains you can hang up around your stuff. Oh my gosh. You can, you just Google it. It's really, really helpful. So like uh, when I'm doing like uh, recordings for like my audiobook or whatever, sometimes I'll just like, uh, I have like, just like my light, my light stands and I'll just jerry rig it up, but it really does help cut down on uh, the echo and outside noise. Oh my gosh, that's, that's, thank you very much for telling me. And now you're gonna have to remind me of the question. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is the nature of my ADT. Uh, talking about um, Jesus giving us the example of what it is to argue with tradition and scripture and what I think, what did you say? I highlighted it. Um, Oh, I've got two. I want to go back to a friend in a second, but I want to go to this one first. What is it? I know it's on the right side of the page, and I will find it because it's that good. Ah, uh, from page 41. As a teacher, Jesus is not contradicting Moses or demeaning other Jewish teachers. He is offering his interpretation of the law, teaching that surprised his followers with their originality and insight. And yeah. Like, so I think that's kind of what we're... I always tell people like, Jesus had no authority, technically speaking. You know, he wasn't from like a, a like a, another house of teachers. He was rolling around doing his own thing. Well, that's really to me the interesting thing about Jesus. And one of the other points I make in that chapter is that Jesus is the oldest historically attested to mm. figure that was called a rabbi, and uh, Christians kind of either don't know or forget that rabbinic Judaism, the form of our friends Judaism, the people mm -hmm. that we know in our lives who are Jews, that that was in historical development at the same time that Jesus was alive. Oh shit. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's almost <laughs> like like the it's like you know we had like you know historical like Second Temple Judaism and then as Jesus is here on the scene, it's beginning to split off in two directions of like Christian and then like modern Judaism. Right. And that 
when Jesus followers refer to him as a rabbi, basically what Jesus was, was he, if you want to kind of cast it in early 21st century language, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus is an example of emergent Judaism. Mm, like we okay. had emergent Christianity in the first mm -hmm. decade of the 21st century. And mm -hmm. it kind of just kind of goes a whole bunch of different directions, different teachers, different kind of emphasis right. going on. But Judaism was, um, it, there was an emergent form of Judaism, which we, we, we call rabbinic Judaism now. And if you've ever been friends with a rabbi, the thing that a rabbi does is so different than what a Protestant minister does. A Protestant minister Get gets, yeah, gets up in a pulpit and says, this is the way to interpret the scripture. This mm. passage means, where in Judaism, what it is is uh, rabbis go into pulpits and they ask questions of the text. Mm. They ask questions of the tradition. And then they offer sort of their take on the tradition and some of those rabbis like jesus wind up being so creative and so imaginative that an entire school of disciples develops around them and so you get different forms of rabbinic judaism but the process is all the same and that is these kinds of creative questioning of what you've been handed. And so that's what Jesus is doing. And as a teacher, um, boy, we show, we so need that today. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, the Protestant idea is a teacher who gives the, you the correct answers for the test. Mm -hmm. Whereas Judaism is a, is a tradition where a rabbi invites you into learning to ask the best mm -hmm. questions. Mm. And as Jesus is that kind of teacher, I think that that casts light on the parables and the confusing things Jesus says sometimes. Mm -hmm. And in effect, we are living into uh, not Christianity. What is Christianity other than an, a, a rabbinic tradition <laughs> invented mm -hmm. by Jesus? Right. <laughs> And that then later, oh, it's so this is also something interesting as people like try to like, when we consider church history, it's like, okay, this thing started off as this fringe religion that had then developed into like eight different seas and then was brought together by the empire in order to, you know, among other things, like it was, I, I it's like, oh yeah, I can see how a government was trying to create a peaceful society by, right. you know, bringing everybody under one single faith and tradition but then I think it's like every single time that happens in history with religion is when it like the religion or the faith practices lose their way. Yep. And, you know. I, I obviously have some real issues with that whole Constantinian sort of moment in the fourth century because I write about mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. how upsetting that was to me when I ran into the idea that the orthodoxy and the creeds mm -hmm. that we have today that people want to hold us to. That's the thing that is the same yesterday, mm -hmm. today, and forever. Um, that it was uh, sort of the, the offspring of a political need for imperial cohesion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And yeah. that's a pretty shocking thing. I mean, when I first learned that when I was in my 20s and heard that, I, I thought I was going to fall through the window. You know, yeah. it was just like unbelievable. I I mean, I grew up evangelical. And so like we I also grew up in my mind. Like, I don't know how they didn't communicate this properly. But I was pretty convinced that if people didn't come to our specific church in like backwoods of Tennessee, that they weren't getting into heaven because they didn't believe the right way. That's the wild thing. But as I was growing up, something that I heard as well is that when you think about how the Romans uh, and the Roman government tried and shaped these original creeds, is that you never notice that nothing in those creeds says anything about love. Because you can't create a law around love because if you create a law around love, there is no more hierarchy. And I also think it's really interesting that I mean, you you go right for the central heart of it there. And that's what I said, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. remains the same about Jesus. But the other thing is just even on a simpler level, the creeds say nothing about Jesus' life. Hello. Just that he died and came back. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And can you imagine if anybody wrote any of our biographies and they said, oh, this person was born, this person died, and they're going to live forever. And that would be it. And and so the creeds really take the attention um, off of Jesus's teacher, obviously, mm-hmm. and they place it on these really complex questions about the nature of humankind, about the nature of divinity, and how those two things are related. And so they're, they're asking a whole group of theo- uh, theological, but also even more deeply philosophical questions mm-hmm. that, you know, I just kind of sigh about them. You know, yeah. it's like, I get it. I re- I'm a, I, I'm an Episcopalian. I recite those creeds, mm-hmm. um, but I yet recognize them for their hitch, their historical context, and also the fact that they are sort of deeply inadequate in asking mm-hmm. the kinds of questions that it takes to live our everyday lives. And I know there would be people mm-hmm. who would fight me on that statement, but you know, come at me. <laughs> I'm going to clip that right there. It's just like, I know people will fight me on that, but come at me. Diana motherfucking <laughs> Butler Bass. She will not be trifled with. Um, I, I want to shift ever so slightly to yes. what you talk about in the first chapter, Jesus as friend, and how you have this beautiful like drawing of the parallel, like talk, Jesus talking about Jesus lets the children come to him, and how you recognize that children understand friendship clearly. And how you learned as Jesus's friend. Um, I wanna, what was the quote? Thank God I highlighted things. I love oh. highlighted books. Um, I want to talk about, actually, can we talk about the idea of greater love has no one than this, that no one might lay down their life for their friends? Uh, this is what you say on 23. It says, but what, what about Jesus's comment? Quote, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, John 15, 13. For far too long, Christians have interpreted this to mean that we have to die for our friends. Of course, there are rare moments when a friend might save another's life by putting down their own self, uh, put their self in danger, like a hostage situation, skipping forward. More typically, we lay down other things in friendship, surrounding isolation, burdens, despair, self-delusion. We lay down our lives we had when we accept the invitation to Jesus's dinner party. 
And then I also want to take it a step further, if, if I may. Is sure. That the, so Jesus, I, I wrote in an asterisk on the top of the page. I'm like, oh, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, when you lose your life, you'll find it. It's just like the thing you think is your life, all these trappings of this world, all the things that's keeping you separate from people that you should be loving or wanting or want to love. That's what it means to lay down your life. So I was thinking about this morning, like queer context always comes to my mind, is that there's so many people in positions of power within the church, ministers, pastors, everyday folks who get in my DMs and say, oh, I wish I could do the right thing. I I'm just, thank you for saying the thing that I can't say yet. And I'm thinking, I'm just like, this is not that hard, first of all. And also, what are you afraid of really losing? Because if you're going to lose your life, your status, your friends, your church, whatever, because you chose to do the right thing, uh, well, then your house is built on sand. Yeah. And I feel like that's the call of Jesus is making. It's like, you, I don't need anyone to die for me. I'm not asking that. And neither is God. Jesus is asking to lay down what you think is your life in favor of what will actually give you life. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you know, that's a really beautiful way of putting it because if you think about it, Jesus in the in the gospels, Jesus lays down his life before he dies. Hello? Ooh. And, yes. and it's in exactly the way that you are saying is that as the, you go through those stories of Jesus, he's constantly laying aside. I mean, he's not a per person of privilege per mm -hmm. se, because he's a victim of right. the Rome, Roman Empire. And um, he so he's on the very lowest um, sort of edge of mm -hmm. a, a terrible uh, social structure. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, you know, this is to me so interesting, is that even within terrible edges of of unjust structures, people develop circles of privilege. And True. so you'll have um, within these kinds of communities sort of sort of markers of status mm -hmm. and boundaries that you cannot cross. And and so within Judaism itself, although it's a persecuted despised mm -hmm. tradition by the Romans, they had developed within it points of privilege. And so there were some Jews that were considered to be more righteous and some that were considered to be more privileged and some who were considered to be closer to God and all of these different things. And Jesus systematically, he doesn't attack Judaism, but he attacks the, the structures of status that had developed even within this persecuted tradition and so he 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 comes in and he says no you know you can heal on the sabbath and and and, and god's not going god's not going to punish me for doing that because god's work is a healing work and so you know god never mm -hmm. never ceases from that that work or you can invite these people to your table mm -hmm. even though these people are they eat the wrong food and they have the wrong jobs and so he, within his own sphere he is overturning the very things that might give his even his own life comfort mm. in order to enlarge the table. And when I think about it that way, you know, it actually gives me chills. Yeah. Because he, he for all intents and purposes, there is no way he needs to lay down anything. Yeah, right. 
because he's already at the bottom. But yet he reveals in his own experience that even when we're at the bottom, there is a place we still need to go Mm-hmm. to find out who we truly are and to open up our lives so that everyone can be included in that circle of friendship. Mm-hmm. And so so I, people sometimes have asked me what my favorite chapter is in the book. And um, I, I love the whole book, but the friend chapter meant the most to me. Yeah, you dive into it at the very beginning talking about this, um, how easy it is for children to like make friends and how to like, and how even like in the books that we read our children that like friendship is like the, I think you said it's like the first virtue we teach our children. And yeah. yet it is the first one that we forget when we enter adult into adulthood. And the verse that comes to mind immediately. Uh, also, like I used to have like a little bit of uh, fill a little buck towards our buddy Paul when he says like, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. Because I thought oh. that he was, I thought that he was shaming children. Um, but then I, I changed my mind about that. But the idea of being childish, you know, being fun or like you know wanting to deeply connect with someone just for the sake of deeply connecting or play—that's mm-hmm. something that we as adults in Western culture like we're not taught to, to keep doing that. We're taught that you only do that for a time. But I think that yeah. that playfulness between friendship and that, that kind of like joyful friendship that Jesus is, you know, that children have, we need that. And I feel like Jesus is modeling that by calling people in. It's like, you see this? Yeah. If you, if you can't do that, you're never going to get in the kingdom. Uh, well, I have wondered about that verse too. You know, uh, when I was a child, I thought as a child. And um, part of the... you. I don't know how you've managed to do it, um, except that you're very intuitive <laughs> and, and, a, and more than a bit of a, a, a mystic girlfriend. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but um, that whole idea about play, when I got to the point in the chapter and I talk about how one psychologist has described mm. a friendship between uh, children, uh, that children see a friend as someone you can trust and someone you can play with. And, um, and, and just, I loved that. It's a definition about who, who Jesus is uh, specifically, but also who God is more broadly. And don't, the, don't we truly want a God that we can trust and a, and a Jesus we can play with. And um, it, it really redirected my attention back because the, the book I wrote before this was about gratitude. And there's a whole chapter in that book on play and the relationship between gratefulness, play, and joy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're being called into this friend, this relationship of this friendship, that you're really actually coming into an experience of joy, because what else is, what else is play? Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was Jorgen Moltmann who wrote some of his earliest work around joy and actually did write a bit about the playfulness of God. And so, so I, 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 I integrate play Mm -hmm. throughout the, throughout this whole book. 
and talk about, you know, sort of the playfulness of creation mm. and how how God, God's own self wanted wanted friends. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, the way you reinterpret the Genesis story. Oh, dang. It's so it's just like, yeah, it's like there is people that was, that was loneliness. God was lonely, did all this. This man had everything, a garden, all the animals, all the beauty of creation, still lonely. And so God brought did something for that. And, and it, I I think ahead. that's a really beautiful way to imagine uh creation of uh, especially in the you know kind of the threesome picture we get from the the scripture mm-hmm. so we get god and then we get adam and eve mm-hmm. and and a lot of people try to use that binary as you well know mm-hmm. uh between male and female and say well this is the this is the created order yeah this is the way god made marriage in the garden <laughs> right so that so there is no so so the relationship is primarily sexual and for procreation mm-hmm. and has and you can't have any sliding scale of sexuality in that in that mm-hmm. but that to me kind of misses the point is that god is is creating friends Mm-hmm. And your friends, um, you know, you might wind up married to one of your friends or you may not. There are mm-hmm. friends for lots of different purposes and and that we've sort of centered it around uh, sexual sexual identity and a mm-hmm. this versus that vision, I think, has sort of limited our vision. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, created great injustice through through the centuries. But it it does help us to kind of step outside a little bit. And then it gives you permission to look at it differently. You know, mm-hmm. I l- always love the fact that in God's image, God created them male and female. Oh, well, wait a second. That means God combines male and female? That God is... Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, is male wait, and wait. female together? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that to me, like, I, I've... Uh, one of my friends... I, we were, it was like way early in my journey of like figuring out sex and gender and whatnot. And someone told me, it's like, I don't see, you know, sexuality and gender as a spectrum, but as a cosmos, it's just like this oh, ever expanding wow. thing where like, sometimes I'm going to float near this constellation. Sometimes this star has a pull on me. And then sometimes I settle in this out here, but it's so much more, I, I see it more. It is a cosmos, right. you know, I don't want, cause like. Even like saying it's on a spectrum says like this and this is the normal is normal somewhere between here and here is yeah. is something else, but when you when the way that you yeah. describe it as like God is entering into this creative process and if we are created in God's image that means we have the same creative potential in our bodies. Yeah, and what if playfulness mm-hmm. is more the point than procreation? And I think I learned that mostly in the context, initially at least, um, from my gay male friends. Because mm. there's so much about the culture of gay men, especially in California when I was when I was growing up, that had to that had to do with playfulness over and against injustice and suffering, mm-hmm. and sort of playfulness like that. I think of the gay pride parades in San Francisco and stuff back in mm-hmm. the in the the seventies and eighties, and so playfulness was like a, almost a it was a rebellion yes. against injustice. And and I I think I first learned that really mm-hmm. from 
like I said, my gay male friends. And now yeah. the, the, the sort of my understanding of that whole uh, part of human sexuality has exploded into including so many yeah. more uh, but people th- and th- experiences. I think that's dead on. And like, that's, I mean, that's part of the reason like I dye my hair purple is because there is, I've wanted to do it. It brings me joy. It brings me happiness. Like the same reason I, you know, uh, paint my nails is even though like, you know, if I go outside of Atlanta, like, you know, this is a little tricky. Uh, but like, I would still want to do it, you know, because it's like you said, it's over and against the things it's like, in spite of this world that is out to kill me every day, I'm going to enjoy this body while I'm here. Right. Ugh. I wanted to, can I pull one more quote? Sure. If I may. You are the host of this table. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm in charge. Um, this, um, then comes, this is from page 19, then comes another surprise. Jesus, uh, Jesus, oh, that you, you were referencing the, the story of, uh, the two boys at school, the one who helped the child with autism. And it says, uh, tells us to go be the other boy at school. We are to be Christian. Go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. So Jesus befriends us so we can befriend others. That's the odd thing about friendships. Sometimes we are Connor, the one in the corner, but we always aspire to be Christian, the one who takes the risk, knowing that Jesus risked when reaching towards us. That when I talk to a lot of my clients and people who are like recovering from recovering from Christianity or from bad religion in general, Jesus doesn't feel like that. Jesus is not their friend. Jesus is the white Jesus who has hurt hurt them. And I wonder if like for you, like I, I think this is something maybe you and I share is like I've never really had beef with Jesus. I've never been mad at Jesus. Right. I'm sure, I've been mad at God, but when I realized where my anger truly lie was in like these systems, like here's the question. How does one begin to disentangle the Jesus that you are talking about and that you know, and that we all have the potential to have a relationship with from white evangelical capitalist military Jesus who probably uh, fucked up most of us. Um, In certain ways, I think in the last month since this book has come out, I've been given the gift of realizing how important the stories of other folks like myself who had Jesus as friend, as our first image, how important it is for us to tell those stories, our our stories, to share them into the world as stories of uh, of hope and possibility. And even though, you know, theoretically, I knew when I wrote this book that other people certainly didn't have the same experience that I had of Jesus. There was a moment in this little virtual book tour that I've been doing that really shocked me. And it was with a group of guys um, who, the, I, I, it, in glorious pastors, pastors. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those guys are great. You know, beer drinking, you know, sort of. Shan Hannigans. <laughs> yeah. They just do all kinds of great stuff when they're on podcasts and they're hard to keep up with because there's three of them. Um, and so, so anyway, I was on with them and every one of them talked about how much they love this friend chapter. And I said, Oh, that's really, 
that's really great, you know? And they said, well, the reason I love it is because it's not what the one said, one said, it's not what I experienced. And then the three started talking about how the first Jesus they knew was a Jesus basically who they thought was going to kill them. Yes. Unless they accepted that Jesus in their hearts, that Jesus was going to, you know, condemn them to hell and that they were going to be, you know, forever, you know, in fire and away Possibly from God. burning in the gay lake of fire. Yeah. And that it was also a Jesus then who demanded of them to go out and share that with other people so that they were rescuing other people from that fire and, and literally told me that the first Jesus they knew was this violent, bloody, demanding, judgmental Jesus. And I went, holy shit. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. literally, I, I don't think I ever realized until that moment that the gentle Sunday school friendly Jesus that I sat in that circle with that you mentioned, uh, here I was, you know, three years old, mm -hmm. sitting in a circle and my Sunday school teacher tells, tells the story of how Jesus welcomed all the children and holds up a picture of the little, of, of little kids surrounding Jesus and me seeing myself in that picture mm. and you know people criticize like the united methodist church that's why i grew up methodist mm. and liberal protestantism they say oh it's so sentimental it's so you know all they care about is being nice and there's no theological heft to it and yeah. stuff well you know what you give me a life that is formed by sitting in a circle with someone telling you that Jesus loves all of the little children of the world versus a life with people who have been told in a different circle that Jesus was going to kill people who did not agree with him. Well, you know, there, there are certain things that are really bad and certain things that are really good. And that Methodist Sunday school classroom mm -hmm. That was so beautiful and that was such a, a gift to me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that for all of the ways that my life kind of, you know, went on different tracks at different times, many of which I write about here and, and the, the Jesus that was always calling me back was the Jesus of that circle. And these guys on this podcast, they never had that mm -hmm. at the beginning Right. And instead, they've had to find that circle later on in their lives. And, and at that moment, my heart just ached because I thought to myself, I think I finally now understand the mm -hmm. stories that my friends who grew up in fundamentalism have been trying to communicate with me. Mm. And that... I'm so, I'm really just so grateful to my parents mm -hmm. that they put me into the world of the gentle, kind, nice, mm -hmm. and even sentimental Jesus, because that was a far better place to start mm -hmm. than what some of the other options were. Yeah. And I think that you being able to, like, what does it say? We overcome by the word of testimony and the blood of the lamb. Oh, and you I'll being go with that. And listen, to be able to testify that just like Jesus is not who, oh, you actually start off with the question, who do you say that I am? Yeah. 
That's my favorite question. That is something I ask people all the time. I'm just like, because I don't call myself a Christian. I ask people, Who do you think? if you see Jesus, then great. Yeah. Um, and but, what, I, what I actually love about that question, the way that I frame it in the book, is that Jesus says that question, who do you say that I am? But I actually put it in the mouth of Paul, mm. who in that conversion, Paul's conversion experience on the Damascus Road, which I think is absolutely hilarious, um, is that Paul doesn't ask, what's happening here? Or um, how is this happening to me? Or what is going on when, when the this moment of this encounter mm -hmm. comes, but he says, who are you? Mm -hmm. And that to me is really how I understand my life is mm -hmm. this constant going along the road and encountering this Jesus mm -hmm. and having to say over and over again, the deepest question. And the deepest question is not what's going on here or how am I going to get out of this or what, mm -hmm. what have you, um, or how did I get here? But the question is actually, uh, who are you? Mm -hmm. And, and that becomes a question of, time. at least it has for me. I feel like you and I could jaw on for a long time. You're real I, cool. Oh, <laughs> Well, well, thank you very much. I will uh, make sure my 23-year-old daughter knows that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, she thinks her mom's cool too, which is really nice because I'm kind of old-fashioned in certain ways. And, uh, but um, you see, you're one of those like people who's just like, you're not going to like, you know, do all the drugs at the party, but you will go to the party, you know? Oh my gosh. I have gone to those parties. <laughs> <laughs> and people say, well, why is she here? You know, she writes religion books and I... Well, I like people and I like music and I want to have a good time. And hello. I just, <laughs> I just want to be it. I want like, to be at the party, you know. Hello. Come on. <laughs> Invite us to your parties, everyone. Invite us to your parties <laughs> when the world opens up. Um, will you, before we hang up, will you please tell humans on the internet where they can connect with you and your work and when Freeing Jesus is coming out? Well, Freeing Jesus is actually... O-U-T now. It's out. It's it already is, out. Here I am. Out. Here I am thinking I get an advanced copy. I'm really cool. Nope. Well, you are cool because you're at the beginning of it all. Um, I know. I, I It's can't. only been out for uh, three weeks. So look it's at you. very new. It's, it's so a good. newborn baby book. And yeah. so people can buy it anywhere online. Their favorite local big box bookstore mm -hmm. or their favorite local independent bookstore. Mm -hmm. So I always encourage people to go towards the latter if they can. Yeah, and um, folks can connect with me in through Twitter. Um, I do go on Twitter. I try to pay attention. There are a lot of people follow me on Twitter. I don't always see everything, but, but even today I responded to a tweet that you put up. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do try uh, my best and, uh, also public Facebook page. I am on Instagram. Don't use it quite as much, but I do show up once in a while. And I have a newsletter. Oh, like so many other people mm. do now. Um, it's called The Cottage. It's platformed on Substack, which is a pretty popular mm. uh, platform for these things. And I write about all kinds of stuff over there. The future of religion, political ideas, mm. what's going on with the pandemic, uh, test out ideas for books. I send out poetry so sometimes you get soft warm fuzzy diana in the newsletter and other times you get diana saying i'm so angry so, <laughs> so you get listen, both which is what we need we need somebody who's gonna show up um i like you i like you so much thank you for your time seriously 
I have really enjoyed this. And I had, you know, I just seen you as a person through social media and I had no idea what to expect. And I feel like I have a friend. Yeah. I, I want to be friends with you too, Diana. <laughs> We'd have fun together. I just know it. That was my conversation with Diana Butler Bass. If you loved that conversation, you can go follow her across the internet at Diana Butler Bass. <clears throat> you can also check out all of her work at dianabutlerbass.com. Her books, including the newest one that we talked about today, Freeing Jesus, is available wherever fine books are sold. You should also check out her other books, Grateful, Grounded, Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, A People's History of Christianity, and more. Um, she really is a phenomenal writer and she's only getting better. So like, check it out. Um, Diana, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I really like you and I can't wait to hang out in person. Uh, that's it for, for this week of a tiny revolution. So let's roll them credits. A tiny revolution is supported by the listeners like you who are my friends on Patreon and Patreon. If you didn't know is the easiest way to support the creatives in your life, making the content that matters. So if this podcast has been good for you, if this, if this conversation was inspirational, uh, gave you an aha moment and you want to support the show more, please go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia and hang out. Um, additionally, if you like the show and you want to like come to any of the, um, the wonder fully made tour digitally, everyone in my Patreon community gets a free digital ticket to every single show. Um, it's, it's an 11 to $33 sliding scale. In addition, we've got a discord channel where people are connecting and, uh, checking out new spiritual practices. We've got some really great workshops coming up in August. And I want you to be there. I want you to be a part of it. And I don't see why you shouldn't. Because um, if you like the show, you've been getting it for free. Why not throw a little bit of money to the thing that makes you happy? You know? Uh, and it also really does help me. This is what I do for a living. And, you know, it's a little tenuous sometimes. And so really, every time you sign up for that $11 a month, that really, really does help. And there's other perks. Go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia. Learn what it's all about. And I love you. Thank you for your support. Um, additionally, if you know you can't, you know, throw some coins around, it's not your, not a big deal. Um, what I'd love for you to do is go to um, the podcast, uh, Apple Podcast, leave us a five star review, and then if you wouldn't mind, share this on social media. Tell other people what you thought about this episode, um, and then tag me and tag Diana. We'd love to hear from you and love to get a conversation started. Um, and also, I think we're going to be adding a new um, channel to the Discord soon about, like, you know, discussion of, like, commentary, things you're listening to. What did you think about this? So we can have, like, some interesting discussions um, as a spiritual community. Anyways, I love you. I'm Kevin Garcia. Like I said, you can uh, follow me across the internet at the Kevin Garcia. And then, uh, yeah, I think that's everything. So take your meds, call your person, shake your ass a little bit. And um, what was it? Take your meds, call your person, drink some water, talk to your therapist if you need to, call a friend. Um, just, you know, continue to take care of yourself and don't grow weary of doing good. All right. I love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.